Welcome back to Real Voices of the Game Productions. I'm Dave D'Agostino, and I'm joined here by my co-host and star of this show, Sal Marinello, and this is The Hot Corner with Coach Sal, episode 251 on our network, uh, 73 countries, faithful, loyal followers. We appreciate you. We're, we've set in motion our affiliate program so that you can be rewarded for the same things you buy every day for your sports and your food and nutrition and your patriotic items. So we're getting that rolling this week, and that way our wonderful, hardworking hosts here can also benefit financially from doing the job they do every week. And basically, we're just trying to bring you great content, uh, unfiltered content, just building better baseball IQs, not just in baseball, but in health and nutrition and in life sometimes. So Sal, welcome back to your show. Big time audience, 42,000 plus followers, subscribers, um, all appreciation, all appreciating the intelligence you bring to your show. Thanks. Uh, great to be here, and I'm glad we have a quick turnaround from the last show because there's always a lot to talk about. Oh, like you said, you could probably do one every day with the content that you have. You 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 hit on a few topics we wanted to talk about this week. I was I'm intrigued by all of them, but the uh, the, the the knee injuries, the ACLs. I know that was on the, on the list. I, I'd love to get to that first because you know back in in our day, uh, ACLs were a death sentence. You didn't come back from those. And nowadays they seem so um, just, you know, normal. Uh, they have them and it's, it almost scares me like the Tommy John stuff that we've accepted it as inevitable. And I'm, I'm anxious to hear what you have to say about it and see what fixes you have. Well, I think uh, we have to, first of all, stop the talk about ACL prevention because I, that's used in, in the field prevention uh, and you're not going to prevent anything can you mitigate yes so i always kind of take a lot of uh, effort and make sure people understand there is no prevention of an acl injury especially in this era of artificial surfaces okay we're gonna we, we're gonna start seeing them by the bucket load you'll see i saw the packers i'm not sure if it was a, a starter or who it was on their depth chart, but they had one preseason game and they already lost a tight end to an ACL. So there's a couple of um, accounts on social media that kind of track the ACL injuries in football, especially in the last 10 years, five years when these injuries have exploded. So I, I like to use the term injury mitigation in general. And obviously with ACLs, there is uh, that same emphasis. We're not going to prevent anything. It's just like someone who tries to tell you there's a safe way to tackle someone. There's good ways to tackle and there's bad ways to tackle. There is no safe way to tackle anybody. And if you want to delve into that, we can. But uh, to, for the ACL prevention, here's my, and I think I've mentioned it on the show, and I have a couple of new clients I started with in the last week. I've used this little bit of an FYI with them. Get your kids off of regular cleats and get them the old, what, what we used to call turf shoes, which are the bottom flat bottom shoes that have multiple, like the entire bottom have those shorter nubs. So you don't get that big, they're calling them blades that are at the back on the heel. And sometimes at the front of the foot on these other high tech, fancy cleats that they're wearing, get the, old school turf shoes that have the multiple complete bottom that's covered in nubs. Yeah, I remember those, those well, what, um, so injury mitigation, you know, with the AC, with the ACL mitigation, what, what are you doing with them from a mobility standpoint, stretching strength? Um, I know we talked about beer and steer a little bit last week. Um, what, what are you doing with them to mitigate that ACL outside of the shoes? So we have the first big, you mentioned it a little bit in, in bringing up the veer and steer. The big thing is to improve movement, all right? Movement skills dictate everything else. So I don't care how fast, you know, and I get, I, you get into these arguments all the time and I don't even get into them anymore, but you can. There's a lot of videos of people we see that are fast. That doesn't mean they move well. And straight line speed, linear speed doesn't always translate to good agility, especially when that straight line speed is, rep is presented by someone who has less than ideal form. The 
forces that are generated by these kinds of athletes are so great that once you add the components of movement, spontaneous movement, uncertain responding, or I'm sorry, spontaneous response to an outside stimulus that could be another player most times, you can't make much of a comparison or a um, extrapolation between someone's straight ahead speed and their ability to be agile. And then of course, like I said, with movement not being great, ankle range of motion, other mobility and stability issues, those instances of or incidents of ACL or your chances of getting an ACL injury go up. But uh, the, the still the biggest problem, I believe, are these non-contact ACL injuries, which are just what they say. They happen not by getting rolled up, not by getting hit from the side, but from your foot planting and the foot kind of gripping that turf longer than it should, which leads to the uh, which leads to the injury. And I know you're meticulous and I know in parts we've covered some of this on previous shows, but putting it together as it pertains to the ACL, you've got a, you've got new clients you mentioned uh, earlier. I, I know you're starting out with the feet and working your way up. What, what, what kind of things are you looking at in the feet? What kind of things are you cautioning against? What are you trying to get them to do with the feet? Well, I start feet all the way up to the ankles. I, yeah, I start the ankle range of motion and that is always going to be of great indicator. The, I call it weak feet. It's not, it's nothing other than what it sounds like. People's feet, athletes feet are weak. They cannot, never mind establish the position necessary to produce the proper force into the ground, but they, they, um, they can't even get into that position because of the, the foot is weak combined with the ankle range of motion. So you get very little extension. Imagine, you know, if you're sitting in a chair and you're trying to lift your heels up as high as you can while pressing the balls of your feet in, into the ground. So the balls of your feet would be right below, right below your big toe, right below your pinky toe, and really pushing those toes into the ground, lifting your heels up. I have athletes that really don't have much range there. So when you add the demands of sprinting and high speed change of direction, it really forces the body to accommodate in ways that are not efficient and not effective and can be potentially injurious. So that is really a big part of what I'm looking at and what I see. And when I video my, my clients running, you can see in, in low intensity movements, their heels are hitting the ground at the same point that their ball of their foot is, the forefoot is, which is a, a problem. And then a lot of times, even when their foot hits properly because the foot's not strong enough, the heel kind of collapses to the ground instead of hitting the ground as a result of a proper follow through. So it would almost be like, Dave, I don't know if it's a great example, but it would be like a pitcher who, when they throw the ball, and it's, an, it's an extreme example, when they finish on their front foot almost falls forward to the point where they have to put their hands on the ground to keep themselves from face planting. That's the similar thing I, I would say with when the heel hits a certain way when an athlete runs. What happens to the knee when an athlete's uh, heel strikes the same time as the, the forefoot? So when the, when the heel strikes either as a collapse or as the same time as the forefoot hits, you're not extend your, your ankle can't be extended. And by that, I mean, your heel can't obviously keep that position where it's appropriately off the ground. It, you're, you're not extending the ankle, which means the knee can't extend appropriately, which means the hip can't extend appropriately, which all combine to reduce the amount of force that you can put into the ground and then produce speed and efficient movement. So with now when you're you're looking at ankle flexibility as well, what what does the ankle look like when and what happens to the ankle? Because obviously it tr it trickles up. You know, we use the word trickle down, but there's there's a movement up. You got weak toes, weak feet. More pressure gets put on. You know, the heel drops. What happens to the ankle in that situation? Well, again, it's not extending, so it's got that, you know, what, what, what you call it is, and, and so there's a couple of things that can contribute to the poor range of motion. It doesn't even have to be 
a lack of strength. If you spend a lot of time in deep dorsiflexion, which means that look at think of your think of an athlete or anybody when they're in the bottom position of the squat or when they're deadlifting and they're at the bottom position of the deadlift with the shin angle being severe with your heel down and your 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 the tension like the, the tension against that force and then the the range of motion and then the speed the slow speed that's another factor that could contribute to this range of motion that's why the people that I listen to my mentors all minimize the amount of time they spend back squatting and squatting heavily and deadlifting and deadlifting heavily where you're where you're in that what they call deep dorsiflexion position because the ankle kind of gets locked into a very limited range of motion there. Now, what about on the other end of the body? Does anything from the the knee up uh, posture extension shoulder move? Does anything up top? affect or mitigate injury or is there a way to, to utilize the top to mitigate injury well the proper ex- posture always is the key you know head head up not forward just as if you would be standing still and people confuse and conflate body lean with uh with posture you can have appropriate body lean and um not and and not have bad posture. A lot of the things I see, the, the, the cue is lean forward, which is not what you want. If you have the proper foot strike, your body will find that appropriate lean. To try to lean, I think, um, defeats the purpose or, or actually makes you less efficient. If you're leaning too far forward, your foot doesn't hit under your hip. So your foot stays on the ground longer. And when your foot's not under your hip, your heel is heel and foot are spending more time on the ground than they should. It's hard to extend that ankle properly when your foot doesn't hit the ground under your hip. Look, if you think of someone, and I use this example, think of someone's uh, plant foot when they do a layup. You never, even someone who's not a great athlete, you never will see someone take a layup full speed, half speed, and not have that good extension off the back foot. That's kind of what the back foot should look like when you're sprinting that plant foot, the, the stance leg, as it's called in sprinting. You should have that extended ankles, extended knee, and extended hip with good posture where your chest is up and which is extending your hip forward. So you're not bent forward at the waist. That's what we see a lot of coaches teaching body lean, and they're really just having their athletes bend forward at the waist, which is not good. So body lean should happen naturally from good form below. So you could tell by looking at somebody from the waist up, you wouldn't even have to look at the lower body. You could look waist up and tell whether or not they've got good foot plant down below. Oh, wow. That's, uh, that's, that's impressive. But yeah. So with what, what am I missing? I, there's questions that need to be asked that I'm not educated in this area enough to ask. What am I forgetting to ask you about ACLs? What other information do you think is important to share with the mitigation? Well, I think people, people need to know that again, it's, it, there's not enough high speed work done in the, in the, in the, I hate using the term weight room, but off the field in the weight room, there's too much squared stance work. There's too much flat foot work. Your body moves on the field and on the court in a variety of ways. Your heels never flat. Your, we talked about this, that the knee is over the toe constantly. If your knee is over the toe, chances are your heels are up and you want that to happen from a position of strength, not because you're weak and you can't control your body, which you could still have someone that could be in a position in isolation like that lower leg, foot, heel, knee could be in the right position. But if you look at the rest of their body, they're off balance or they're leaning forward or other some other factors. So we need to have more high speed work done in the, in the gym. We, have, we need to have more non-squared stance work. We need to have more one-legged stance work. And we need to have more rotational plant and change of direction because – that's the mechanism by which a lot of these non-contact injuries occur. So if you think about it, Dave, if you think about putting your left foot in the ground like you're going to cut and then turn your shoulders to the right and either do a lateral step or almost a rotational step to go sideways or change direction like you might get in soccer or lacrosse, that's the, that's the point at which you get those non-contact injuries. Foot plant and then you're turning away from your base. That's called turning away from your base. That's where that ACL goes. 
<laughs> most of the times. And you, you meant you kind of answered the question before I was going to ask. I was going to ask you to kind of go a little deeper on squared stance in case our audience doesn't know what you mean by that and, you know, what would be not a squared stance. You, you hit on that second part. But by squared stance, share with our audience what that means in case they're not if you, uh, if, you just, if you can picture your traditional bodyweight squat stance where your toes are like on the same line, where your feet are even, you're able to get down into that into that squat stance. That's great if you're a heavy squatter. If you're a power lifter, that's needed. If you're, again, I hear this all the time. Offensive linemen need to be, it's like, look at an offensive lineman's stance these days. Uh, with these passing offenses, or even when they're hands down, when they're when they're up in a pass or in a two point stance, I should say. Sometimes it's pass protection. Sometimes they're still run blocking. They're not in a squared stance. Their back heel is up. Their front foot is forward. They have a staggered stance. They have one foot forward, depending on which side of the line they're working on. So. Those are the stances that you need to work on. You do need to do minimum amount of work in a squared stance, which just doesn't occur in any sport. So you need to change the angle of your feet. You need to change the stagger of your feet. You need to have heel up sometimes. You can have heel down sometimes. Foot pointed out one foot. One foot. I'm sorry. One foot pointed out in one direction. The other foot straight. The other foot pointed out in the direction, and the other foot straight. So there's all ways you can manipulate the stance to accommodate or to acclimate the body to what they're going to need. It's going to need to do on the field, the play or the court. Now I I grew up in the era where the, the, you know, you mentioned squats where they were, we were told, don't let your knees go over your toes. We discussed that last show and you touched on it here, but I, I, I lifted one of my, my lifting partner in the summer or not the summer in the off season, sometimes where it was a guy I played with the St. Louis blues with hockey. And he used to do what, what I now know the name is Cossack squats, where he was taking his knee off playing side to side. Um, I know we're an audio show. Where do you sit on stuff like that? Where you're taking your knee off playing a little bit in that direction? Well, all that stuff is good. You just don't have to load it. You know, you don't have to have a weight on your back or weight in your hand, you know, wear, wear a weight vest. I mean, those are the, those are the, variations that are needed and are appro- and are appropriate that you just don't see enough of you see the uh, the opposition to those because of quote the risk of doing it but it's usually because it's a back squat devotee or someone who's answered to everything is how much can we load this movement you need to be able to do those things with speed not slow time under tension not how it occurs in the real life, not how it occurs where it's a central nervous system function, not a muscular function. Most of these high-speed activities, not most of them, high-speed activities are driven by the central nervous system, not by your musculature. Too many of these coaches turn these exercises into muscle movement, a driven a movement driven by muscle or a movement controlled by muscle instead of by the central nervous system. Um, well, good. I'm glad I was doing something right with the, with that and it helped me out i he said it helped him out because that's skating you're you're pushing side to side like that and it's it's constant off plane movement and i liked it because it helped me as a as a basketball player and it, it certainly did as a baseball player too with hips and knees and, and ankle flexibility and whatnot still do it today though i don't load today though i do it just straight body weight today yeah i mean that's great i mean you, you you'll see that be that's a, a very good movement for kids to get into it it gets into the single leg a lot of single leg mobility. It, it gets you into that deep, that deep squat, but you could do it with speed. You don't spend time under tension in that bottom position. You, if you would move side to side rapidly where you're able to get a complete range of motion, that is going to be the type of movement you need. And as I mentioned, a weight vest, a, a lighter weight vest for something like that would be fantastic as a way to uh, increase the intensity of it. Well, what, um, what haven't we covered with the ACL? And if, if you got some other stuff to add to it, if not, we, we can move on to debunking that myth of cramping. Yeah, I, I think that's good. I think, you, you know, you have to be able to move well. You have to be able to be 
flexible and have mobility. Flexibility goes beyond just can I bend and, and bend over and touch my toes. That in itself is not a good or bad thing. It's a part of the puzzle. And as I mentioned, this height, this ability to be in and out of positions with high speed and all three planes of movement, rapid changes of direction, that's the key. So that's the best way to mitigate your risk of any injury, especially an ACL injury. Yeah. And again, I said last quite, but parkour, are you familiar with parkour? Yes. What do you, what's, your, what's your thoughts on that? I wish uh, I had been able to been exposed to that early on. You know, those, those guys and girls that do that stuff are the best movers out there. Yeah. For our audience that doesn't know, look, look it up parkour, P-A-R-K-O-U-R. It's uh, all the stuff we talk about, basically going out and play. You're going out and playing, basically. You're running, jumping, swinging, sliding, rolling. It's all sorts of fun movements. So, um, and if you, if you want to see a, a comical version of it, pull up the office episode on the, the, the TV show, the office, they have a whole episode on parkour. But uh, let's move to debunking the myth of cramping right now. Uh, chatted a little bit about it in the past, haven't gone super deep into it, but uh, seems to be, you know, I joke with you all the time. Our kids come to, you know, basketball practice or baseball practice, and it looks like that they're, they're parking, you know, they're getting ready to, uh, to get rolling on uh, some sort of desert excursion. They've got these, you know, 94 ounce water jugs, their fear of cramp, uh, of cramping here to talk about that. So the, uh, there's really not a lot. You don't need to go into a lot of detail. I'm going to give you, again, an analogy. If you heard someone say the moon is made of cheese, you would think, or the earth is flat, you would think, oh my gosh, you know, how ridiculous can you be? The cramping because of dehydration is in, uh, in a similar category, especially when you're hearing it at the highest level of broadcasting and it's being treated that way at the highest level of sport. The first thing you see when a guy cramps, and it's usually men because we see it a lot in football, is they're running out with water. And the announcer gives the now Pavlovian response. You got to make sure they get those fluids. And it has nothing to do with hydration or dehydration. It has to do with neuromuscular fatigue. And that's why it mostly happens earlier in the season. And a lot of the times it happens with guys who maybe, and it happens in other sports, maybe aren't properly conditioned or have been deconditioned from an injury. So, so, so it doesn't have anything. I mean, it has nothing or little to do with not enough water. Uh, I would say nothing at the level we're talking about yeah. when we're watching high-level athletes from even high-level rec through obviously the professional slash international ranks. Those athletes are all hydrated to the gills, pun intended. And uh, to say that somehow they need more fluid is just, it's laziness. It's intellectual laziness and it's ignoring basic, basic facts. Dehydration is almost treated like, what would they talk about certain issues becoming the third rail of like politics, for for instance, dehydration has been treated as if it's some dire life or death condition. Most of the best athletes in the world, especially I would say endurance athletes, I think we've spoken about this, operate at a high level at a substantial degree of dehydration. Those top level marathon runners aren't guzzling water when they run because they know A, they don't need it. And B, it's going to slow them down. And they don't need it because they know they can perform that way because they've trained to perform that way. Yeah, I agree totally on that. Uh, and one other thing I know I've mentioned on the show, but it bears repeating, is your rate of gastric emptying diminishes substantially during activity. Uh, it, it, it goes the rate of how fast your stomach, the contents of your stomach, in this case, it's going to be fluid how fast it empties and gets into your system. It's going to take a longer time because your body's functions are concerned. Your body's concerned with other more important functions. So you've got these cases of people that have died from being overhydrated. There was just a story recently of a woman who drank 64 ounces of water in a 20 minute period. I never heard as to why she did, but there are plenty of stories about recreational marathoners having drank themselves into uh, overhydration and they die, that um, 
that's the that is the bigger danger. Uh, athletes can function quite well in a state certain state of dehydration, and if you're eating and drinking regularly, normally drinking to thirst is the best rule of thumb, and is the best rule that's been uncovered by science. You're fine. Yeah, it's my my favorite adage. I eat when I'm hungry. I drink when I'm thirsty. I sleep when I'm tired. Keep it simple. So, how do you mitigate cramping? That's our word of the day. Mitigate. How do we mitigate cramping? That's not electrolytes, right? It's I see those Gatorade commercials with electrolytes. No, that's all. That's all marketing nonsense. You need to train properly. So again, we we talked about how sprinting is the best form of conditioning, and it's the best way to both treat an injury, a hamstring injury, and to prevent an injury, is to sprint. We don't get enough, and in football, I think in football we see this a lot because the contact rules, especially in high school, have been so cut back. In other words, there's so much less contact. There's so much less push and pull in the trenches that the calves, especially the calves, do not get that kind of work. They don't get that push and pull that happens in a way that it can only be re- uh, replicated in practice or a game or in scrimmaging. So you've got a uh, you've got a situation where you have to come up with better ways to recreate in practice the conditions that result in that game time experience, that game time atmosphere, that game time environment. And what we did, what I did at every place, we used the sled, hitting the sled with quick bursts constantly through practice for short periods of time as a way to kind of prepare the body through a non-contact with another player means of trying to best condition the athlete for what they were going to face. Yeah, I think that's an undertrained uh skill is that's playing through contact. I get asked all the time, you know, take basketball, for instance, what are, what are some of the factors that you can tell right away, college player to pro player? And there's a lot of them, but one of the big ones is, can they play through contact um, where they can perform fundamentally? And can they play through contact where they can stay away from injury as well? So I like that point. By sled, you're talking the football sled? Yes. And and you'll see, you will see some cramps in field lacrosse. There are other circumstances. I will use the professional, the PLL, the Outdoor Lacrosse Pro League, as an example. These are athletes who are not training all during the week with the team. They're on their own. They come in on the weekend. They get some time in. At this point in the season now, they're, they're traveling out west. Last week, Denver, the next two weeks, are going to be uh, Tacoma, Seattle, and Salt Lake City. So you have guys with a quick turnaround. Things happen to your body when you fly. There's, again, things you could do to prevent that or mitigate it, but you can never prevent it. Those factors are real and do have an effect and are things you have a harder time protecting against, but it has nothing to do with drinking more fluid or drinking Gatorade. So I just want to make that distinction. There are still some other factors that still result, uh, I'm sorry, that come from other stimulus, other environmental factors, as such as travel, especially long travel, short turnaround time, not a lot of time. Again, I think, though, it goes back to how much time can these pro athletes that, that play at a high, high level, super high speed, super high intensity, how many reps are they getting like that during the week? I am fortunate that I have a couple of players who not only are good on their own, but I see enough that that's what we're doing. We're doing 20, 25 minute sessions with another 20 minutes of some skill work where we're looking at how they move, working at full intensity with, with the same things they do in a game. And we've been very, I've been very successful with that. So, and and so here's, there's a word here, Dave, we've used before. So get your pad out. The, the way you view these things are, they can help protect you from the thing that you're worried about. There is, sprinting itself is a self-protective process. There's a term for that. It's called mithridatic. And what it does is it it's building an immunity to small doses of something that could be potentially dangerous. And it comes from this character, myth, 
Mithridates, who built immunity to poison by taking uh, a doses and uh, poison in small doses. So again, you sprint all the time, you sprint properly, you're not going to get injured when you sprint on the field. Same thing with the calves. You have to come up with that kind of intense action that you can accommodate, acclimate yourself to so you don't have a problem during competition. I like it. Mithridatic. I wrote it down phonetically. I'll look it up after. It's um, M-I-T-H-R-I-D-A-T-I-C. Ah, I got I got the second letter wrong. I put a Y. I'll adjust that. The uh, No, I like that. And then that small dose of poison, we're not, we're not uh, encouraging people to do that. But you get the point with the old adage, right? As, as we grew up, our, our adage with the coaches, you got you to gotta practice harder than you play. That way it makes the game easier. And you're talking about that from a training standpoint as well. Yeah, because there's – sorry. Go ahead. Sorry. No, go ahead. Well, no, because this – so there's this concept of – I'll give you a general concept and then I'll give you a specific. The amount of muscle fibers that are used in a voluntary muscular contraction, and I use this example because most people are familiar with it. If you think of a calf raise where you're sitting in a in a seat or even doing a standing calf raise and you're willfully doing that Calf raise, just what the exercise says. That is what's called a voluntary muscular contraction. And you're lucky if you're using close to 50% of the muscle's potential to produce that contraction. So far, clear? An 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 involuntary contraction of the calf would occur during a jump or a sprint. And in those movements, in those circumstances, your muscle activity level is 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 close to about 90% of your muscle's ability to contract. So you're talking about double the contractile potential of your muscle is being used in such an involuntary situation. So jumping, sprinting are great examples of how your calf is involuntarily contracting at a much higher rate than it could contract while you're doing a calf raise. Your hamstrings and quadricep muscle group, those muscle groups are working at a much higher level when you're sprinting and jumping than they are when you're doing a leg extension, leg press, squat, leg curl. It's double the, the activity. So they know from sci- from scientific studies that sprinting at 95, I'm sorry, uh, sprinting at high intensity where that's basically your max sprint, those athletes have a lower risk of hamstring injury than and other lower limb injuries than athletes athletes that don't sprint. Well, it goes back to what we talk about on the show about baseball. Guys are getting injured because they're trying to supplement baseball activity in the weight room and trying to quick fix stuff. And there's really one way to get stronger as a hitter, and that's to hit. And as a pitcher, throw. So I like that. Um, what else? What else are we missing on? on this factor with, with, you know, we're, we're debunking hydro. It's It's simple. I think we've hit it. You know, you have to do things that are specific to the task. What's your task. I'm a a D back in, or I'm a wide receiver. Well, how many routes do you run? How many cuts do you make? How many high intensity contact incidents do you have? Instances do you have? You have to replicate that. Now, like I said, the rules dictate that you can't tackle every week. I think there's a 10 or 15 minute limit in some states in high school, a couple of days a week, two or three days a week. So you're, you have to come up with other ways. You have to get athletes where they're in contact and push and pull. We used to do that too. We'd have guys stand across from each other in a staggered stance with their hands on each other's shoulders. And we'd have one group push and let the other group kind of give resistance. And then we'd have that group push and the other group would give resistance. So you're getting that push and pull at a closer intensity at a closer situation than you would in, in, in a game. And it's not necessary to always tackle to do that. I like that. And I didn't realize there were those rules uh, with the tackling, but you had mentioned earlier with tackling, do you want to touch on that quickly? There's right and wrong ways to tackle. Well, yeah, I, I, some of the main things, don't put your head down, don't lead with your head. But the, for a while, there was the NFL made this effort. They had a program 
that was saying, you know, tackling the safe way. And it, it's not safe. You could tackle someone 100% properly and you could run into someone else. You could land on your collarbone. You could land on that. They could land on their collarbone. They can get hit by someone else that's not even involved in the tackle. So there's good ways to tackle and there's bad ways to tackle, but there are no safe ways to tackle. I mean, that, that might sound like a, a, a ridiculous distinction, but football is not a safe sport. I, I'm, I love football. My boys all played. I played. I coached. I will be broadcasting some high school games this year. Football is not a safe sport, and you can't tell people there's a safe way to tackle. You can't give people this false sense of comfort and say, oh, well, don't worry about it. We're going to teach them this method of tackling that's safe. That's just not how it works. Yeah, and it's, again, more marketing. We saw that happen with NFL. There's dangers to, to all sports, but well well put. Well, um, you, Are you ready to hop on to the sledgehammer training now? Yeah. All right, let's go with it. Go. Let me hear about that. I like it, too. I used to I used to, I think I told you my dad, when I would go hit when I was younger, I had a wheelbarrow, 88 baseballs, my tee, and I would wheel it over to the baseball field, which was our high school field behind the house. We were lucky to live back there. And I would hit into one side of the fence. And then the guy who ran the facility said, can you go when you back lefty hit on one side, righty, can you push that dent back to even? So that was my, my, uh, work every day. And he'd put cinder blocks in there and my job because Italian, uh, dads and they they love to manicure their lawns and landscape that's their their castle so i would have cinder blocks and bricks in there and my job was i had to break you know two of them righty two of them lefty down to their finest so i had the sledgehammer in that wheelbarrow too so talk talk on your sledgehammer training it's just a good basic way to do work i like to quali- uh, classify that as it's just it's just work it it adds to your base it doesn't interfere for most athletes with other things. Now, if you're doing that all the time and you are a golfer and you're doing it with a too heavy sledgehammer and it's a slow movement, there's, you know, there's pros and cons to everything, but I, I enjoy it in context with most of my clients, athletes and non-athletes that gives them a sense of doing something that's cool, that looks different, that will develop massive strength in your hands and forearms if you're one of these followers of bodybuilding strategies where you're going to do wrist curls and reverse wrist curls to develop your grip, it's a waste of time. Your forearms will get bigger and stronger and your hands will get more strength and be more functionally strong by working with the sledgehammer than doing any of those in-gym kind of, I would call them a fake exercise. Your hand doesn't really work in that wrist curl action in anything other than doing wrist curls. Wrestlers always have super strong hands and wrists because of their task, and they do that task so much. There's other things you can do, lifting sandbags and water bottles, but the sledgehammer is a great kind of fun, different stimulus that will really help your overall conditioning. I'll tell you, Dave, when we do it with some of my athletes and myself, when you take your pulse and your heart rate, your heart rate will go up if you're doing it at a a high level where you're really trying to swing it. And once you're, once you are good at the technique, your heart rate will go up higher during, during that maybe 30 second bout of swinging than it will in just about any other activity, including a heavy duty interval on a, a stationary bike. Well, talk, share a little bit about some of the ways that you present the sledgehammer. You know, you mentioned like 30 second intervals to get it, get into the heart rate too. I know that's all personal with everybody, but, and then also, you know, like some people are lefty, some righty, what's the grip on it and how, you know, how long is this hammer, the handle, what, what, what kind of sledge? Cause I have a couple too. I've got the big long one. I've got the little, I've got the little hand one. Sometimes I'll do some things with that, whether it's yard work or hammering things into a fence just to kind of work it. I got a little sledgehammer for that, but so kind of. Paint that picture for our audience, how you're using it. So I, I try to be as as uh, less structured as possible because so much of what we do is overstructured. So I just say we're going to grip it and rip it. But in general, I have a couple of different ways I do it. I, uh, if you go on Amazon, you can buy a loading dock rubber bumper, do a search, and it's this 
the one I have is a black square of heavy-duty rubber, and it would be what you would see affixed to the wall at a loading dock. So when tractor trailers back up, and if they hit into it, it's rubber and it doesn't hit into the structure. That I put on the floor, uh, on the ground. Outside. I do this all outside. Uh, I'm looking for something that would allow me to do it inside. I put it on the grass and have people straddle it, and I have them stand in all different positions. If you're righty, you start with your left hand down, your right hand at the top, and as you swing, you get a, a knee bend and you slide your hand down. And You also want to kind of relax your grip as you're at the point of contact. It'll reduce the amount of jarring that you get back through the handle, especially for a beginner. I also use a wooden stump. The wooden stump, like from a piece of a tree that's been cut, that could be anywhere from, it depends on where I get them and who brings them to me, anywhere from 12 to 18 to 24 inches high. Different dynamic. It's up higher, but you get less bounce. So sometimes you have to pull that hammer back a little more. Whereas if you use what you see a lot of people use, a truck tire, you get a lot of bounce. So it's a different kind of strength. It's you're controlling that rebound more than you are like picking it up and lifting it, which you do a little more when it's the tree stump, especially if it's lower. The rubber bumper, even though it's low to the ground, probably no higher than your ankle. That's how thick it is from the floor to your ankle, from the ground to your ankle. That still will give you a good bounce, not as much as something like a tire that's up higher and that's rubber. So I go 10 with one side, 10 with the other side. Or I'll go 20 with one side for one set. When I do my rest and come back, I'll do 20 with the other side. Or I'll go side to side. So I'll go right hand, bring it up, go left hand. So it requires a little more dexterity to make that switch from swing to swing and manage whether you're pulling it up off of the stump or whether you're managing the rebound off the rubber. Now, are you, are you using a universal size lever, meaning the handle, and then what, what size? Uh, and mostly for myself, I have what you would consider the standard sledge. I have a six-pound head, and I have one that's a 10-pound that I use. That It's amazing the difference between the six and the 10, how much heavier that 10-pound sledgehammer feels than it actually is. And I also have a 20-pounder that I haven't used too much because the problem with that, the problem with the 20-pounder is if you have a tree stump, It'll destroy it pretty quickly. And even with the, that low rubber bumper I have, it'll just get destroyed with the heavier sledge. The tire I have, I have a, a big truck tire at home that I can use that's pretty resilient. But again, that hammer comes flying off of the rubber when you're dealing with the rebound. So you have to be careful. It doesn't come back and whack you in the head because if you get hit with that 20-pound sledgehammer, you're in trouble. Yeah, that was actually my next question I was going to ask. What kind of instruction are you giving them in terms of, you know, to maximize the exercise doing, but also safety standpoint? Uh, with, the, with the wood, I'll have them wear, like I have these a pair of safety goggles that I'll have them wear because sometimes the wood will crack or splinter and you get like little bits of, of sawdust come flying up. So I want to obviously minimize that. For the most part, even my most or my least coordinated clients figure out a way to do it because it's just kind of intuitive. It's self and it's self correcting. As long as they are standing in the proper stance, they're probably not going to hit themselves in the shin. I haven't had it happen yet. So it's actually pretty easy. And like I said, I try to minimize how much direction I give. Yeah. There's a, there's a self-preservation aspect to that particular exercise that should kick in with most people right away. First thing I always thought of was that, that rebound, what you're talking about, a mouth guard, something to protect the... Yeah. And I think the, the other thing too, it's, it's great because of um, my, my rotational athletes. I have some college, high school baseball players and my lacrosse guys. My lacrosse guys love it and swear by it. I keep it light with them. I give them the 10 pounder too, but there, if you go on my Instagram... Coach Sal's Playmakers, you can search and see everybody from my high school kids to my pro guys and my regular clients using the sledge. Yeah, I like that. It's across the board. That, that It goes back to your theories. I mean, you we talk a little bit about these old old time baseball players when they're, you know, they weren't being paid a lot. They had to do off-season work and sometimes it was manual labor um, and they got stronger by doing manual labor. And when they stopped and we see athletes more into the specialized training now, 
we see more injuries now than, than ever before. So it's quite uh, ironic that that's the reason for doing it. But we're also uh, getting back to functional training like the sledgehammer. Are there any other uh, functional training ideas like the sledgehammer that you're experimenting with or that you're, you're using to get people back to basically working? Like so those? I have sandbags or actually you can buy rice uh, depending on which cheap, what's cheaper. There's another great grip work. There's no handle. Your, your hands are gripping the bag. I have a complete line. I should probably figure out a way to bring these to market because they're pretty cool of PVC pipe with different uh, circumferences and loaded with different material, water, gravel, and seal them up. Sometimes they're a mixture of the two, the heavier one, the ones that's the real tough one I have for my uh, higher level athletes. It's a grip and press movement where it's a three inch or two, it might be two and a half inch PVC pipe. That's about 18 inches long, maybe two feet long, and it's capped on either end. And I have filled it with water and garden stone. So it's not completely full. So the water moves around, the stones move around. Great grip enhancer. I also have used, I don't have them now, but I'm going to do that for this year, is old water jugs from your water machine or water dispenser that I'll fill again with some, whatever the cheapest material is, usually road salt. And I like the road salt better than sand because it makes a cool sound. And and obviously you don't, you have some that you could fill up all the way, but I like to not fill these jugs all the way because you want that weight to shift, which is a more dynamic action and will force the person to have to be much more focused and it develops a much more wide range, a much wider range of strength. Yeah, no, I like that. You mentioned the PVC pipe and the water jugs. I see some of these people trying to use this to, to supplement hitting. So I don't let our audience, uh, our audience don't, don't be confused by what Sal's talking about these PVC pipes for hitting and people using water jugs to simulate the, uh, the actual hitting motion is not. No, we- yeah. I don't, I don't like a lot of that because it's the, the weights are too heavy. Even I, st- I, I should have said it with the sledgehammer. The, the reason I stay light is I want those athletes to be able to move as quickly as they can and get full range of motion and not have to uh, make any kind of accommodation and do anything that's going to get in the way of their shot technique. Again, that's one thing I think coaches need to be more aware of with baseball players. That bat shouldn't be too heavy. I I don't like things I've seen where it's not a full, complete movement through where their hands would go in the bat. I think that's why we have a lot of uh, oblique injuries. I think we're stopping the hands and not letting the hands clear and come all the way through where they would finish on a follow-through. That's quite a lot of... Uh, of torque and force that is transferred to your torso. That's a, uh, a great example of distal. We talked about proximal versus distal. There's a case where your hands are almost as far away from your body as they could be, and they're still at a high speed and you're rotating away from your base. That's a lot of the times I think why we get these oblique injuries. Oh, I, I couldn't agree more. We're asking these kids to swing I'm not asking them, but these gurus max velocity with the swings to try to get the most they can at exit velocity. And then we're also asking them to put an unnatural halt to it. And that's just, that's why we're seeing a lot of these oblique injuries and these hand injuries and wrists and forearms. So I think, uh, the stuff you gave the audience today, uh, you know, I wasn't sure how you were going to tie them all together, but again, you did a masterful job of connecting them with, uh, practical and then the stuff that these kids and families can do on their own. And even, you know, obviously we touch on the casual everyday athlete too. So phenomenal job. What do you want to leave the audience with today? How do you want to, how do you want to close them? And what did we forget? And then tell them how they can find you and support you. Well, uh, if you follow me on Instagram, it's coach Sal's playmakers and it's coach Sal M on Substack. I'm going to be, uh, a little more involved with my Substack. Check out uh, my Instagram. I did a thing about why I hate the Apple Watch. That's something we can kind of tease for next week. Uh, we did not, Dave, we did not get to our prescription drug of the week with the ridiculous 
side effects versus the benefits. So we'll have to tease that um, for next week. And I think that's good. I think we had a good, uh, a good, well-rounded show. Do you, do you want to give them one to look up and we'll hit on it next week? Or do you want to save it till next week? Give them what? A, over the counter? Prescription one. To t- yeah, to- let's do the one we talked about. It's, uh, uh, I'm, I'm going to pronounce it QVIVIC. It's Q-U-V-I-V-I-Q. It's for uh, helping you to fall asleep. So uh, let me get the actual. Let's and I'm going to give you. Not only am I going to. Yeah, it's it's not it's it's insomnia and p- for people who have uh, trouble falling asleep. So we're going to give you some alternatives to that because I know there's a lot of people that have a lot of trouble sleeping, and I've hit on a really good combination of some basic over-the-counter supplements that you could get on Amazon or any place that will really help you without putting you at any risk of addiction, which a lot of these drugs do, and without you feeling groggy and and sluggish the next day. So that's a good tease too. Oh, good. I I like that. And if if people, you know, work like they're supposed to work and you talk about a lot of exercises, you'll get tired organically. You won't need to take medication to go to sleep. But, uh, well, Sal, thanks again for a great show. I think I said 251 in the beginning of the show, but this is episode 252 today. So I cheated our audience with that number. So self-correction here, 252, 42,000 plus subscribers. So we appreciate you guys. And once again, Sal delivered here on the hot corner with Coach Sal with Real Voices of the Game. Sal, thanks so much for what you do. We appreciate your great show today, bud. Thanks, Dave. See you soon.